Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I've got a very interesting guest today, uh, Father Vincent Lambert. Uh, He's an American Catholic priest, and he's the designated exorcist of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indianapolis. And we're going to talk about uh, his work and what he's seen and experienced amongst various exorcisms. So welcome, Father Lambert. Thank you. Yes, Rich. Thank you for having me here today. I look forward to our conversation. Well, excellent. So how does one become appointed or get on the radar of you know, the archdiocese uh, to, to become an exorcist? Is this a, a welcome thing or is it a, a surprise? Like what, what happened in your case? You know, when a Catholic priest is ordained, he promises obedience to his bishop and his successors. So when back in 2005, the Archbishop of Indianapolis was looking to appoint a new exorcist, and he told me that he was selecting me. So it wasn't a job that I was looking for, but it was one that found me. Okay. What was the approach like? Were you just uh, reached out to by the archdiocese and they said, hey, you know, Father Lampert, you know, the position opened up and we'd like you to consider it? Or, you know, are you able to say uh, how the conversation went in brief? Yes. So technically, the Catholic Church would say that the local bishop is the exorcist in his diocese. And then if he chooses so, he can appoint one or more of his priests to do this ministry in his name. So the exorcist in Indianapolis passed away back in 2005. So all the priests knew that the archbishop was looking for a replacement. I happened to be walking into a meeting with the archbishop with a group of other priests, and the bishop looked at me and said, I'm appointing you to be the exorcist. So it was completely off guard. But again, the bishop was asking me to do this, so... I had to take on that responsibility and then to actually learn what it was that he was asking me to do. He even told me that he wasn't quite certain what he wanted me to do. But the Archdiocese of Indianapolis has always had a priest appointed to this role. In fact, when I was appointed, I became one of only 12 Catholic priests who were designated exorcists in the United States. Wow, that's amazing. So what what was the training like for the job? Did you have to go to another archdiocese and train with their exorcist, or what did you do? The church says the best way to learn the ministry is through the apprenticeship model. It's easy to read and learn all the church teaches and believes about the reality of evil, the devil, and evil spirits. It's another thing to have the practical application. Since there really wasn't anyone to train under here in the United States, my bishop sent me to Rome, and in the early part of 2006, I lived at the North American College in Rome. I found a Franciscan priest who at the time had been an exorcist for 25 years, and he allowed me to sit in on 40 exorcisms that he performed during that three-month period, and that allowed me to learn and the church's ministry to those who were up against the forces of evil and who were seeking the help of the church. Oh, wow. What, what was it like on your first uh, few experiences? Was it frightening or disturbing? Like, what, what did you experience, if you can say? Yeah, I would say all the above as a priest. You know, when I was appointed, I was ordained back in 1991. 
So I was 14 years into my childhood when I was appointed to this ministry. So I always believed in the reality of evil and what the church teaches about the devil. It's one thing to kind of, you know, believe that. It's another thing to see it firsthand. So I still remember the first exorcism that I set in on where the priest who was training me, he began the uh, the rite of exorcism. The demon manifested in this person. Their eyes rolled in the back of their head. They began to growl and snarl and foam at the mouth. There was change in the contortions of the face. The eyes refocused with this hideous grin. And then pure evil look began throwing out all kinds of obscenities. And it was very clear that this was no longer the presence of that person as an individual, but now the demon who was acting in and through that person. Whenever somebody is possessed, all of the actions of that body are now wholly defined by the demon and no longer by that person. So one who's possessed, I would never say, for example, John Doe did this or said this. I would always say the demon did or said this because the demon is treating that person's body it were its own. For example, using the person's eyes to see, their mouth to speak, their ears to hear, and so on. So all of the actions, once again, of that person's body are now wholly defined by who is treating that body. Wow. Have you observed that demons can, once they get control of someone, can they make that person physically do things that they never could do otherwise? Absolutely. In fact, the church says that there's kind of four criteria for judging the validity of cases of true demonic possession. You know, as an exorcist, I'm I'm trained to be a skeptic. I should be the last person to believe that one is truly possessed or dealing with the extraordinary activity of the devil. In fact, I would say that the church could do greater harm if she labels one as being possessed, and that label prevents the person from getting the true help that they need, whether that's from the mental health field from their medical doctor. But some of the things that I'm told to look for to validate cases of true demonic possession, the ability to speak and understand language that's otherwise known to the individual, having superhuman strength beyond the normal capacity of that individual, having elevated perception, meaning knowledge about things that I know that that person as an individual otherwise would not know, and then finally anything of a sacred nature that would cause a very violent reaction, such as being in a church being blessed with holy water, being shown a crucifix, having the Bible read in front of them, and so on. This would lead me to know that it's no longer the that person in front of me, it's no longer them, but now it's that demon who's using the body as if it were its own. There is no such thing as an emergency exorcism. The priest needs to be very methodical, follow a very strict protocol. So in getting to know the person, I would know, for example, that they don't speak Latin or Greek, and that would allow me to know that if I'm meeting with the person and praying with them, and now all of a sudden, out of the person's mouth comes Greek or Latin, for example, that would lead me to know that this is no longer that person, but a demon who's now speaking through that person's mouth. How do you know when you're speaking to someone if the demon isn't listening and just subtly changing the answers the person's giving to you? without overtly showing possession. That's why before even beginning, the person needs to have some type of a psychiatric evaluation. So the church would want anyone who believes that they're possessed to go and have a psychiatric evaluation, basically asking the psychiatrist, is there anything about this person's behavior, 
that is outside of your understanding understanding or scope or knowledge. And then it, the person is required to, to have a physical examination by their family doctor, again, trying to rule out any physical cause. Because some of the things that the church would say are signs of demonic possession could also be seen in people that are suffering physically or mentally. For example, somebody that has, you know, Tourette syndrome can have vocal outbursts and whatnot. So again, the church really wants experts in these medical and mental health fields to weigh in on any particular case. It is important to note that I'm not asking the psychiatrist or the doctor, do you think this person is possessed? No, I will make that determination, but I want the best possible information that I can get. So I will rely on the expert opinions of these individuals. The church says that I need to have moral certitude before proceeding with an exorcist, meaning beyond a doubt the person in front of me is truly dealing with the devil, some other evil spirit. So again, I need to have that certainty. And these experts in the mental health and the medical field help me reach that moral certitude. You know, you mentioned that demons will know things that, you know, how, how could the person know that? Are demons clever enough to monitor these interactions or interviews with psychologists or psychiatrists and, you know, kind of follow the person along their whole path? And then when you get to the exorcism part, you know, have, have any demons told you that they knew what was going on and they're playing you for a fool? Like, how, how clever are they? And how, how knowledgeable are they? Well, demons, as fallen angels, and that's where they come from, is the belief that when God created the angelic world, that he gave angelic creatures infuse knowledge so they don't have to learn anything like the computer being downloaded with information so an angelic creature good or fallen doesn't have to go to school for example to to learn a different language they can just call it up and they're also very knowledgeable we would say that uh angelic creatures are preternatural you know only god is supernatural because god is outside of nature but preternatural means to be above our natural idea of how things work and operate. And so demons are very intellectual. They can manipulate things. They can know things. They don't know the future, but they can certainly use deductive reasoning. That's what we might or how, and then present that as if it were a fact or a truth. And certainly they will always try to play humans for a fool. Certainly they're more intelligent than we are. Which, again, why the church, the Catholic Church, has a very methodical approach on how exorcisms should be done. Because, again, in any situation, the demons shouldn't be allowed to have the upper hand. And sometimes they do try to play people for fools and even the exorcist himself. That's why as long as the priest is following the very strict protocols from a faith perspective, ultimately the true exorcist is Jesus himself. In an exorcism, Jesus is not a bystander, he's the main actor, and relying on the power and the authority of Christ that he's given to the church and to the church's ministers, that's the right approach to have. I always tell people, if they're relying on me as an individual, we're all in trouble, but if they're relying on the power and the authority of Christ as given to the church, that's the right mindset. Okay. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, 
We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Are you able to remember any surprisingly intelligent or curious things that demons have said to you? You know, what's really interesting is that demons are very arrogant, so they would prefer not to manifest or show themselves. They prefer to be hidden, but they reach a level of pride during an exorcism where they are just so really disgusted by the fact that they're being commanded to do something by a creature that they consider to be inferior to themselves, namely a human person, that they will lash out. For example, I had a colleague who told me that he was working with someone who was possessed, and during the ritual itself, the demon lashed out and said, you stupid monkey, who are you to tell me what to do? So there's this great pride and arrogance about them that eventually they will lash out because they do consider humans to be inferior to themselves. Have you ever run into a possessed person that was possessed by the same demon that someone else was possessed by? And if so, do they have memory of the other people they've possessed? Demons would never articulate or give any credence to someone else that they have possessed. People always ask the question, when a demon is cast out, where does it And from the Christian perspective, you know, the angels that fell were cast down to the earth, where God has given them permission to roam the earth, if you will, until the, the end of time. So it is important to note that these angels were cast out of heaven, but they weren't cast out of creation. They still have a role to play in God's divine plan. And so to that kind of line of thinking, demons cannot do anything that God does not permit them to do. So they don't have free reign to do whatever they want. If they did, the world would be a, a lot crazier place than perhaps it already is. But again, it's only what God is permitting them to do. Right, but... You know, I'm sure you've spoken to many other exorcists, and some lived have done it for decades. Has has any exorcist said, "Wait a minute, I've seen you before"? You know, X number of years ago, you're, you're that same demon. I remember you. Has that ever happened? I will say, I did an exorcism one time, and you know, during the rite of exorcism, a demon may be commanded to name itself because whenever it reveals its name, it shows that it's submitting to the power and the authority of Christ. Because whenever you know a person's name. You have a certain power and control over them. This particular demon told me its name was Leviathan, which is a the name of a demon mentioned in the Bible, the great sea monster. So I worked with that person, and the demon was cast out. And then I had a colleague in a different part of the, the country who told me he was working on somebody who was possessed, and he encountered the same demon, Leviathan. So even though demons may not have said, well, I possessed this person before and whatnot, it is possible that a demon that I have cast out has ended up possessing someone else. But if demons have possessed multiple people, wouldn't they know the tricks and be much harder to, to exercise if so? Like, you know, again, if a demon's been around for thousands of years and has possessed hundreds of different people, why wouldn't they be hip to everything the Catholic Church does and counter it somehow? Well, that's, they'll certainly try to counter it. But again, because the real power behind an exorcism is God himself, then, you know, compared to God, demons are nothing. They might be, you know, superior to humans in their intellect, but compared to God, they're, they're nothing. 
because we should never put a creature on the same level as the creator. So a demon, the devil himself, cannot be put on the same level as God. You know, we should never think that somehow God and the devil are kind of, you know, equally opposing forces, if you will. You know, the devil is still a creature, and again, he really has no power when he goes up against God. And really, in a rite of exorcism, the power that the demon is going up against is the power of God. We might even say that in an exorcism, a demon is commanded to return that which it has stolen, namely a person created in the image and likeness of God. Mm, okay. You know, you said they're very intelligent, more intelligent than people. So are you able to recount something that a demon said that you're like, I mean, that maybe it took you off track, maybe it didn't, but you were like, wow, that's pretty smart <laughs> without without telling the demon anything good to, you know, to bolster its confidence. You know, one of the things I learned when I was training in Rome 18 years ago is that not to really stay focused on anything that a demon is saying, because the, the Bible tells us that, you know, the devil is a liar, the father of all lies. So really trying to listen to anything the demon says would be allowing the demon to take control of that session of exorcism. Because again, as we were talking about earlier, because demons are very intellectual, they might try to get the priest to have a sense of arrogance or pride in the fact that maybe, you know, somehow I think I have a certain power of abil or ability over these demons. So again, I... I would never really pay any attention to what a demon is doing. I know I assisted in a, an exorcism in a, a different part of the country. There was a new exorcist, and he asked if I would be there just to kind of help him and watch and maybe offer advice. And at one point during the exorcism, two demons named themselves. One was the demon Molech, and then the other one was Beelzebul. And at one point during the exorcism, the demon Molech was manifesting and began to do a chant. And then the demon Molech said that it was chanting in its own language a song of praise to Beelzebul, who was a higher-ranking demon than itself. So it wished to glorify this higher-ranking demon and kind of using its own language, if you will, to do that. Now, in an exorcism, you might be thinking, wow, what is this demon doing and whatnot? But again, I think a lot of those are meant to be distractions where the demon is trying to get the exorcist to shift away from the focus on God and put the focus back on himself. Mm. And so during an exorcism, I don't really much pay too much attention to what the demon is saying or what it's doing. Because again, ultimately what it's trying to do is take control of that session of exorcism so that it will not be cast out. This is probably a very foolish thing for anyone to have tried, but has anyone tried to interview a demon? No, I'm not really, I'm not aware of that. I'm sure that perhaps out there someone has attempted to do that. I think oftentimes people may encounter demons, either directly or indirectly. You know, people engage in many activities that can create an entry point for the demonic into their life. In fact, when I work with somebody, there's a very specific questionnaire that I will use that would allow me to know if this truly is demonic in nature, what was the entry point? What did a person do that gave a demon, a right or authority to either afflict them or to possess them. So I always try to figure that out. And, you know, I think sometimes people either directly or indirectly give a certain amount of authority to demons over their lives. People may do that if they're engaged in things like doing a seance, trying to 
reach out to the souls of the dead. And in reality, they could be encountering demons who are masquerading as maybe the souls of those who have died as a way to try to attach themselves to humans. So again, there are practices that are forbidden in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy. It talks about avoiding things like practicing magic and witchcraft, of trying to speak to the dead and whatnot. And I think when people do these things, they can be encountering demons who then will attach themselves to them. It may not always be demonic possession, but the church does recognize other types of affliction. There can be demonic vexation, which are physical attacks that a person receives from a demon. There can be demonic obsession, which are mental attacks. Literally, the, the demon is trying to get inside of the person's head so that everything that they're thinking or experiencing is filtered through the presence of this evil spirit. So it is possible that people are doing things that are allowing demons to act in their lives. What would be an example? What would it look like if a demon was filtering your thoughts or someone's thoughts? That's where somebody would just be obsessed with evil. Maybe they believe that they've committed the unforgivable sin mentioned in the Bible, which is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Maybe everywhere they look, they see the number 666. They have thoughts of maybe doing bodily harm to someone, and they're thinking, where in the world did that come from? So again, there is this general presence of evil about them that's causing them to either think or be tempted to do things that are completely outside of that person's character. You know, simply to walk up to somebody on the street and maybe you just punch them for no reason. You have blasphemous thoughts whereby you know that you have a good relationship with God, but then you're blaspheming God. And you're thinking, where is all this coming from? Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, lots of questions to ask you. If we can, can we go back to, you know, the first or some of the first exorcisms you witnessed besides the person, you know, doing this, that or the other and saying things uh, or the demon saying things to the person? Do you, do you ever feel a shift in the presence in the room? Like your demons, again, convey a feeling to you as the exorcist, like, oh, you can tell that they're there? Absolutely. That's been my experience. You know, training in Rome, that was the case. And then Cases that I've dealt with back here in the United States, you can always tell when a demon is present. You know, one of the signs would be that the temperature in the room can actually get much colder. And that could be a sign that there is a demon that's manifesting. Usually when a demon possesses somebody, there's kind of a change in a person's complexion. There's this kind of a, a very heaviness about the person. And then it's known that this is no longer, you know, that person's, you know, being present, but now the demon that's operating through them. You know, a good question that I'd ask is, you know, why would a demon be interested in possessing a human person? And the answer is found at the very core of Christianity, whereby we believe that the greatest thing that God has done for us is to take on human form. The fancy word is the incarnation. So God became incarnate in the person of Jesus. And because the devil wishes to mimic God in every possible way, he believes that he takes on human form by possessing a human body. But then certainly when he does that, he distorts the human person because in distorting the human person, the devil believes that he's indirectly attacking God himself. So some of the signs of that I've seen over the years, you know, it's, I mentioned eyes rolled in the back of the head, foaming at the mouth, growling, snarling, changing in the temperature of the room. There can be a very strong stench or odor that comes about. I have witnessed when the demon manifests, the person's body will drop to the ground. 
and slither like a snake across the floor. I've witnessed a body begin to levitate during an exorcism. Wow. And again, demons are able to do all of these things because that preternatural nature of theirs. So again, they're outside of our understanding of the natural order. So they're capable of manipulating things. They're also capable of working on a person's memory and imagination. So again, they can be very deceptive in their trickery. Do you know, like, so once you start an exorcism and the demon manifests, you know, because you showed the cross or whatever you did, do you, can you tell when the demon subsides for a moment? Does it subside and come back? Does it try to hide momentarily and fool you that the original underlying person is there? Like what, what happens during exorcism? Like what's the demon's playbook to distract you and to throw the whole thing off course? Demons will try to resist. In fact, everything the church does in the rite of exorcism is meant to force the demon to manifest. Because when the demon manifests, then the battle against it will begin. As I mentioned earlier, they would prefer to remain hidden, but the rite itself will cause the demon to be dragged out into the light. So the things that are done in an exorcism are kind of aspects of the Christian faith that the demons have rejected. So these things are thrown into their faces, if you will, so that they will show themselves. So the rite begins by blessing the person with holy water. You know, the power is not in that holy water. But the holy water reminds us of our baptism into Christ, whereby we have become a new creation. After the blessing of holy water, there's the litany of the saints, invoking the presence of the, the holy men and women down through the history of the church to be present during this prayer. Reading of one or more of the Psalms out of the Old Testament, gospel accounts of Jesus casting out demons, holding up a crucifix is meant to say to the demon, you have been defeated before, you will be defeated again. You know, when Jesus is being crucified, the devil believed that that was his moment, that he won. But the moment of his perceived victory actually becomes the moment of his defeat. So again, all the aspects of the rite of exorcism are meant to cause the demon to manifest. And then he's defeated with, if you will, the aspects of the Christian faith. Hmm. But what else does the demon do to distract you, you know, you as the exorcist from carrying it forward? Like, what have you seen some errors made by, you know, by newly appointed exorcists or exorcists? They're just, they're not on their game that day. The demon's, you know, gaining a foothold and they're losing ground. You know, every exorcist has to prepare himself. So as a Catholic priest, I would celebrate mass before and I would spend time in prayer. I myself would go to confession. I will determine where the exorcism will take place. It's always in a sacred space. I jokingly say it's never in an abandoned house on a dead-end street at night or in the thunderstorm. That might make for a great movie. But again, the, de the demon doesn't get to decide where it will be defeated. The church herself will make that determination. I will also determine who else will be present. There is no such thing as exorcism tourism. Nobody is there out of a sense of curiosity. Anybody else who's present that is there to pray. Obviously, I will be there. The one who's afflicted will be there. I require that person to bring a family member or a friend, and then I will have other people in the room who are there to pray. And it is my experience, and all these people need to prepare themselves as well, because it's my experience that when a demon manifests, you'll see the eyes kind of size up everybody in the room. And whoever the demon perceives to be the weakest link, that's where the demon will try to get inside of that person's head, kind of scare them, if you will, speak to them, threaten and harm them. So again, the demon will look for the weakest link as a way to try to disrupt the prayer of the church. And as long as I follow the necessary protocols and preparation, there really is nothing to fear about what the demon may try to do. But again, if 
the priest doesn't prepare properly. And I do know a colleague of mine who told me that he kind of rushed into things too quickly. And when the demon manifested, he got punched in the face. So there are ramifications for not following the very strict protocol of the church. Again, that's why I mentioned earlier, there is no such thing as an emergency exorcism. The proper procedures have to be followed. It is true that, you know, I'm publicly known. So I have many, many people who reach out to me for help. I average about 3,500 people a year who uh, are asking for help. And what's interesting is that the majority of these people have already self-diagnosed, meaning they believe that they're possessed and they need the prayers of the church. Half of these people are Catholic, half come from other Christian faith traditions, other world religions, or no faith background whatsoever. But I do find it more difficult to deal with people who have self-diagnosed rather than someone coming and saying, something's going on in my life that I can't explain. I don't know how to deal with it. Can you help me? But sometimes if I say to somebody who is self-diagnosed that in my opinion, they're not possessed, that it's a mental health issue. Unfortunately, if I don't tell them what they want to hear, there's always somebody else out there, not necessarily a, a priest who's an exorcist, but maybe somebody who identifies as a self-proclaimed exorcist who will tell people what they want to hear. I had someone from another state one time who had been diagnosed as schizophrenic. He contacted me because he thought he was possessed. I set him up with a counselor and I spoke with him and I told him, in my opinion, it wasn't demonic possession. It was a mental health issue that he needed to continue to work on with a psychiatrist. He didn't like that answer. And a few months later, he called me back and said that he had found a professional exorcist who told him that he was possessed by five demons, but that he would have to pay $1,500 each to have them cast out. So unfortunately, so he didn't, he didn't get a out. break, like cast out four, get the fifth one free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, there are people out there that will take advantage of people's brokenness. You know, and sure. the, the Catholic perspective on exorcism is that it's a ministry of charity. You certainly would not tie money into trying to defeat the devil. Yeah. That would be a very bad combination. But yeah. How often does the possessed person like launch out of their chair and like attack people? Have you ever been physically attacked or other people in the room or the demons don't really do that? If the proper protocol is followed, they won't do that because there's even a prayer that it protected safeguard everyone that's involved in that session of exorcism. I've had demons get very agitated. I don't restrain anybody because one of the signs of demonic possession is superhuman strength. So no restraints are really going to do be of any good. I would rely on the power of God. Sometimes I've had, you know, the demon once it possessed, the person will try to the body will try to get up out of the chair, run out of the room. Early on in this ministry, during a session, the demon jumped up out of the chair and ran out of the room and was hiding in a closet. Huh. So again, you kind of learn, you know, on the top training, if you will, about proper procedures and whatnot. So you'll say a prayer that will help protect you from the demon attacking you or other people in the room. And if it's not said, will will they? Has there, have there been instances like that where... Yeah, that could certainly happen. Yeah, because hmm. again, if, if the priest thinks it's about him and he's not relying on the power of you know, God, that's where the danger can come from. The priest had trained me in Rome before I left. The last thing he told me was, if you're ever doing an exorcism, and even for a brief moment, think to yourself, wow, look at what I'm doing. He said, you just focus the attention on yourself. And when you do that, you step outside of the protection of God. So again, as long as I stay focused on the power of God that is active in this rite of exorcism, there really is nothing to fear. If I step outside of that and start to put the focus on myself, 
is when I can put myself and others in danger. Oh, wow. Does it make any difference if the person who is possessed is of faith or not? It does make, you know, that is, that's a key ingredient. So they initially, they don't necessarily have to be a person of faith, but they also have to express a desire to have God in their life. In the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament in chapter 11, there's an account that says once the demon has been cast out, it goes and wanders through the arid wasteland, and then coming back and finding the house swept clean, meaning it's gone, that God hasn't been invited in to fill the void. Then the demon goes and finds seven other demons worse than itself, and they come and take up residence in the person to the degree that the person's situation is much worse than it was before. I would even suggest that casting the demon out is the easy part. It's getting the person to invite God in, which is even more difficult. You know, faith in general is in decline in the lives of many people here in the West. And I've seen a growing trend in recent years for people to view the exorcist as a magician, meaning somehow I have powers and abilities. I have my own bag of tricks and I can make all their problems go away, but they certainly want nothing to do with God. So even... An exorcist, well, while he's preparing to work with somebody, that person has to express some desire to have a relationship with God. That's a key ingredient in all of this, because you know, Scripture will tell us that having faith will cast fear out of our lives, and ultimately the devil operates on fear. So it's not enough for the demon to be gone. One has to invite God into their life. doesn't mean you have to be like a holy roller or anything but it does mean that you believe that God has a, a place in your life, and then you begin to work on and cultivate that relationship with God. Well, how, how have you seen people be affected by you know, having a demon of them cast out? Do they, do they typically tend to come to faith, or is it like uh, you know maybe the first week or two, they're super thankful, they're like, yeah, 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 and then it kind of fades away, and they go back to their previous existence? Yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's all of the above because each person is different. I even tell people, though, that if they've been possessed, demons know that they were successful before, and perhaps they may try to possess the person again, thinking, I did it before, maybe I can do it again. And so that's why the person really needs to have a strong profession of faith. You know, again, we all know that when people are desperate in need, they'll agree to do anything, but then oftentimes when maybe the situation kind of de-escalates, then they can forget about God. But when they do, then the demons may try to attack these people again to the degree that they get repossessed. So again, it really is different with each person, whether or not they're going to live up to that commitment to uh, to grow in faith. Mm. Do people remember what happened when, they, when they're possessed, you know, when the demon manifests, or is their memory kind of fuzzy or wiped clean at that point? It's a combination of both. So I've worked with people who tell me that once the demon manifests in their body, they no longer have any recollection of what took place. Others have told me that once the manifestation begins, then they're aware of everything that's happening, but they're like a prisoner trapped in their own body, helpless to stop any of it. That's you know, horrible. The church would say that, you know, just as much as there is a hierarchy in the angelic world, there is a hierarchy in the demonic world. So they vary in strength and malice, maybe according to the height from which they fell. Certainly, the highest ranking of the angels that fell was Lucifer himself, who became the devil or Satan, and then all of the other angels would kind of fall below him. But there is a hierarchy in the demonic world, and it really is a matter of 
trying to understand what ranking of demon that I may be dealing with. And it is true that oftentimes it isn't a question of one demon, but it could be multiple demons kind of clustered together with a demon of a higher ranking that's kind of controlling the possession itself. Well, wouldn't the demon's arrogance cause that coalition to, to fragment? If someone has multiple demons in them, I would think that they would you know, argue amongst themselves or want to or get jealous or something like that. Yeah, there is no fraternity or collegiality amongst demons. They hate themselves just as much as they hate us, but they are united in their hatred of humanity. What's the old line, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? So demons, again, there's no fraternity there, if you will, but they are united. And oftentimes the weakest demons are the first to go. But they're even, you know, kind of conflicted because they want to leave, but maybe the higher ranking demon is trying to force them to stay, which leads to even greater torment for them. So it is a great, crazy, chaotic, dysfunctional world with the demons. How do you discern the level of demon you're dealing with or how many there are? And what's different about a super powerful one versus a weak one infesting someone or, you know, possessing someone? Usually weaker demons don't really have a proper name. They might say that there's a, you know, the demon of anger or gluttony or lust. Think of any of the, the deadly sins. The ones of a higher ranking seem to have a proper name. So like I mentioned earlier, casting out the demon Leviathan, in that person, they were, they were possessed by seven demons and they were kind of, you know, working together. You know, in the gospel accounts, when demons speak to Jesus, they always go and speak from the, in the singular to the plural such as, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come against us before the present time? So again, and these weakest demons, they're, they're always the first to go. The ones of a higher ranking, like Leviathan, told me that it had a right to possess this person because the person had done something that gave the demon authority to possess them. But the human person has the capacity to grow in holiness and virtue. We can say, well, that was a really dumb thing to do. And then we can repent and want to change. Demons may try to convince us that, no, it's one and done, but that's certainly not the case. So anyone can ask for help in having demons cast out. It's important to note that just because somebody is possessed doesn't mean that they're manifesting 24 hours a day. To be possessed means that somehow the person, either directly or indirectly, gave authority to a demon to attach itself to their life. They enter into them, if you will, and then something may trigger that demonic connection that causes a manifestation. The people who are possessed can go through the normal aspects of life. They can go to work and school and do these types of things, but then something will trigger the manifestation. And because they're not manifesting all the time, then the person can ask for help from the church. No exorcisms cannot be performed on anyone against their will. The person has to ask for the help of the church. And as a priest, I don't go around trying to drum up business and telling people, hey, you're possessed, you need an exorcism. No, it's the people who reach out to me who believe that that's the case. And then I have a very strict protocol that I will follow to make the determination whether or not their situation is demonic in nature, is it spiritual, is it physical due to a medical condition, or is it mental due to some type of you know, psychotic, whatever that may be going on in the person. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if you can remember, but like the, the strongest ones that you've ever come across or, you know, come up against, like what, what did they do differently? 
Were they smarter? Were they better at distracting you? You know, is it a tactic for demons to try to make you angry so you, you get mad at them and then that breaks you out of the whole, you know, the absolutely. whole exorcism mindset? It's absolutely all of that. Because again, ultimately, they want to be in charge because they think they are. So they will do everything to try to, to get me rattled, to give into anger, to become distracted, you know, and based on... I don't know, the, the ranking of the demon possessing the person could determine how long an exorcism will last. So the demon Leviathan that was possessing the person I was working with, I worked with that person for one year before the demon was cast out. We would meet every three to five weeks based on scheduling and, and whatnot. I've done exorcisms before where after 45 minutes, the demon was cast out. But the ones of a higher ranking are always the ones that are hardest to go. And I will say, too, that determining the length of the exorcism really will be the person themselves, because demons seem to have a greater hold on people when in what I would call the apostate world, meaning people who grew up with faith, they had a relationship with God, but then they rejected it. Demons seem to have a greater hold on these people because they knew the truth and then walked away from it, compared to people you know, in the so-called pagan world, if you will, who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And then when it's proclaimed to them for the first time and they're possessed, demons will flee immediately. So again, demons do seem to have a greater hold on people in the apostate world. Because people always ask me all the time, you know, is there a greater presence of evil in the world today? And my response is, I think there is. Not because the devil has upped his game, but because faith is in decline. Faith in God will lead us in one direction, but the lack of faith in another. You know, a current study suggests that one out of every five Americans, for example, now identifies as being an atheist. Even if they grew up in a traditional Christian home, they now reject God. And again, when people have a relationship with God and then reject God, they may be more susceptible to giving the devil more power and authority over them. It's almost like they step outside of the, the protective realm of God and then put themselves in a position where they could end up in the realm of the devil. Hmm. You know, as you go about your day, let's say you just go to Starbucks or whatever, I don't know. You know, maybe in the beginning, did you feel like, I wonder if everyone's possessed? Or, you know, how many uh, uh, demons everywhere? Like, what's your sense of things you know i'm sure you've calmed down over time but do you feel like you have insight or can you see more of what's going on in the unseen realm than before i think so just become more aware you know i will both say that it's not healthy to see the devil everywhere you know even as a a priest you know my goal is to see the presence of god everywhere and not what the devil is trying to do and even we're working with people who are dealing with extraordinary demonic activity Really, my goal is not to focus on what the devil is doing in their life, but to help people realize what God wants to do in their life. Because again, we can't attribute everything to the devil. It would be a bad statement to say the devil made me do it. We all have free will. The devil can propose that we do something, but he can't impose it on us. We can still say no. And even if we succumb and give in to the temptation, we can always repent because ultimately, God's mercy and forgiveness is greater than any sin that we can commit. We just have to ask for that mercy and forgiveness. So I'm aware of a great presence of evil in our world, but I'm also aware of the greater presence of God and the presence of goodness. 
And that's really what I want to help people experience through the ministry of exorcism that I've been called to do here in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Oh, how has it changed your faith? Has it deepened it? And you know what's that been like over the years that you've done this? It certainly has helped me to deepen my faith and even my priestly identity. You know, we live in an age where faith is in decline. There's fewer priests today. The church has had to deal with the clergy sex abuse scandal and the impact on the church. But being an exorcist has helped me to realize that priesthood is not a occupation. It's not just something that I do, but it's truly a vocation, a calling from God, meaning I do what I do because God has called me to do it. So again, I think being an exorcist has helped me to solidify my priestly identity and really better understand the role of a priest in the life of any parish community. Yeah, I'm sure there's many people of faith that maybe have have never experienced the, what they consider to be, a, you know, a supernatural experience from God. But you know, it's it's funny. Like you've seen obviously tremendous evil and bad things from demons. But I would I would assume again, and you're confirming it that it, it has strengthened your faith. So faith. So it's weird that it's kind of funny that evil has has become a good thing in your own life and. Obviously, what you're doing is a tremendously beneficial thing, but uh, it's just kind of, I guess, interesting how bad things can be for the good. You know, I always say that if people believe they're being attacked by the devil, then use that to your advantage. An enemy will only attack us at what the enemy believes to be a weakness. But if the devil helps us to see a weakness in our lives, then we know where we need to put in more effort and time to kind of shore up those defenses. So again, take what the devil is doing and use it to your advantage. And that goes back to what I touched on earlier. The devil may have been cast out of heaven, but he wasn't cast out of creation. He still has a role to play according to God's divine plan. And that certainly is true for our own individual lives as well. So if the devil is attacking us, rather than giving into fear and running away, then to say, how can I take this attack? and take my relationship with God to a higher level. So use the devil for your own benefit. Yeah, that's really great advice. That's awesome. I I really like that a lot. That's really good. Hmm. I guess just, you know, last couple of questions for now. I I guess I find this odd. Uh, A lot of movies that are about uh, demons and the devil and negative things, you know, they always seem to be using the the trappings of the Catholic Church. You know, the movie like The Nun, The Nun 2, you know, that. Are there any... Is the portrayal by Hollywood of any of this stuff at all accurate, or is it just complete uh, ridiculousness? I think Hollywood gets it very right on target when it comes to what the devil is doing. So all the manifestations and whatnot, I think where they kind of miss the target is in an exorcism, the focus is really on God. But for a lot of these movies, the focus is on the devil. So that may be where they miss the mark. You know, a couple movies came out recently, you know, the uh, the Pope's Exorcist starring Russell Crowe. It's about the life of Father Gabriel Amor, the former chief exorcist in Rome. He kind of helped bring exorcism and demonic possession into the modern equation, if you will. He passed away back in 2016. This movie didn't get a lot of good reviews within the Catholic Church, especially with the International Association of Exorcists, thinking that they didn't correctly portray the life of Father Amor's because the focus was more on the devil. Another movie that came out recently was the movie Nefarious, and that got better uh, reviews. You know, Nefarious is about a man on death row who's possessed. He has a psychologist who is an atheist, and the two of them have a dialogue with one another. What's interesting about that movie is 
It doesn't really focus on the theatrics of the demonic, all the manifestations, but what it shows is the intellectual character of the devil. And sometimes that's not an aspect of the devil that many people think about. You know, people always think about, you know, like Linda Blair and the Exorcist, the body levitating and head spinning and pea soup flying, but they don't really think about the intellectual quality of the devil. And I think at least that movie brings that into into the modern discussion about the devil and what he's capable of. Well, one thing came to mind. What if, you know, someone, again, is possessed, they want help, and you film, you know, the exorcism, and then you show it just to that person later when they're not in that state. Do you think that would be helpful? Or what would that do? Would that really, like, horrify and frighten the person to see themselves like that? Or, you know, has it ever been done? I know. Not that I'm aware of. The church doesn't permit exorcisms to be recorded to protect the identity of the person, kind of like going to confession in the Catholic Church. There's a seal of confession where everything is kept private and confidential so as not to put that person out in the limelight or to make them some type of spectacle. So they, you know, the identity of that person and their situation. I will say that there was somebody who gave permission for them to sell an equipment. He was, the quality isn't very good. There's some question of whether or not he actually gave that permission. Because again, if he did, that would go against what the church teaches about the ministry. And at least in my opinion, it would be hard to accept the fact that, you know, Father Amorth would be just being disobedient to the church. Because being disobedient and trying to fight the devil would be a very bad combination. Because mm-hmm. by being disobedient to the church, then one would be stepping outside of that protection and safeguard that the church provides to the priest. And again, all those that are involved in that session of exorcism. Okay. Just last question for now. Has, has anyone encountered Satan himself that possessed somebody? Or, you know, what is like the highest level demon that anyone's ever encountered? I know the priest had trained me. I asked him before I left Rome, what was the most difficult case that he had ever dealt with? And he told me that he had worked with somebody over a five-year period. Some demons were cast out. There was one that seemed to be very persistent and strong very resistant to everything that he was doing. And the demon was refusing to name itself. So he said, he finally said to the demon, is your name Lucifer? And again, we believed that was the devil, his name before the fall. And he said, the demon responded, I used to be known by that name, but no longer. And so the priest who trained me said he found that to be, you know, something very peculiar. Because again, he said the Lucifer can no longer use the name Lucifer because to use the name would be to acknowledge the giver of the name, namely God himself. And because he has now rejected God, he can no longer use that name, which is why I refer to him again as Satan or the devil. But yeah, Satan himself has been encountered by many exorcists during exorcisms. I believe that I've encountered him in exorcisms that I have done as well. What was different about it when you feel like you believe that you encountered him? Was he just unbelievably stronger savvy or is it just a little bit tougher than other ones yeah all of that again that sense of savviness because again it's the notion of what lucifer did you know the belief was that lucifer before the fall was the greatest of all of god's angelic creatures closest to the throne of god and lucifer was not influenced by anyone else to sin you know we can be influenced by others so his thought to rebel against god was his very own it was internal. It wasn't external. It didn't come from outside of himself. And then 
based on angelic nature and the hierarchy of the angels. When Lucifer chose to rebel against God, this thought reverberated through the entire angelic choir. And then one third of the angels embraced Lucifer's rebellion against God. And then along with Lucifer, they were cast out of heaven, sent down to the earth, and where they will now try to trip humans up so that we will make the same poor choice that they themselves have made. But again, in all of this demonic structure, the devil himself is seen as their leader. That's why we would say that it's Satan and his demons, because they now refer to Satan as their chief. Mm, okay. But one last one last thing, if I may. Last one. Promise you. Um, you said that some of the demons will know things, I guess, that, you know, how could they know? How could this, this possessed person know this? Is there an example that you can recount, you know, without violating anyone's privacy of something that was said and you're like, wow, how did the demon know this? I would say that usually it's not 100% that they know something. It's that they're using deductive reasoning. Demons can watch us. They can observe us. They can guess what we might be thinking or how we might act and then present that as a fact. But again, what they're doing is using their higher intellectual quality to try to get us to say, wow, look at that demon, and put the focus on them. That's why demons, again, sometimes during an exorcism and their arrogance, they'll begin spouting out like Latin or Greek, ancient Aramaic. They really want to say, well, look at me and look how smart I am and look how dumb you are. And once in an exorcism, I had seven years so I got training. And uh, he, the demon didn't know him from Adam, didn't know anything about him. And then the demon made a reference to the fact that he was attending a very prestigious seminary. And then the demon's like, you think you're so smart, but you're nothing more than a sack of excrement. Say the word excrement, you can fill in the word. Right. But again, he knew that about this seminarian, even though that was never revealed. Hmm. Okay. Well, well, Father Lampert, this has been a fantastic interview. Very, very interesting. I appreciate your time and you know patience with my questions. I would guess you know, there's no need to give people information on how to reach out to you because you're probably overwhelmed already with requests. But what, what would you like me to, to say in closing? Is there anything I could say that would be helpful to you? You know, I think anybody that believes they're dealing with the demonic, the best thing that you can do is go and talk to your local pastor. You know, it's kind of like if you're sick, you don't go see a specialist right away. You go see a family doctor who then may refer you to a specialist based on your condition. Because ultimately, people that are suffering from the demonic need pastoral care, and they're going to receive that the best way from their own local home church, if you will. And then it could be that that pastor is the one who will either pray with that person or then refer them to the exorcist if they believe that that's the right course of action. You know, oftentimes when people, you know, go in and talk to a minister and say, I'm possessed and I need an exorcism, that closes doors right away. It's always best for the person who believes they're afflicted to reach out to a local pastor and to say, there's something happening in my life spiritually. I, can't, I don't really understand it. Can you help me make sense out of it? And I think when people have that mindset, they're going to have a better receptive response because it is true that a lot of ministers may not know how to deal with this matter. And I've had countless number of people who told me that, you know, they reached out with phone calls and emails and knocks on the door. 
and doors were closed in their faces, emails were never answered, phone calls not returned. So rather than saying that one is possessed, they should just say, help me make sense out of what's happening in my spiritual life. And again, if people have that approach, I think that they'll find a more receptive response. Okay, excellent. Well, again, Father, thank you so much for spending this time. It's been a, a fantastic interview, and I appreciate your time and effort. You're welcome, Rich. It's been good to be with you today. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.